Hello and welcome to another episode of Dr. J's American Passages. I'm Dr. J. Today, I'll be reading a letter written by Abigail Adams to her husband, John Adams, in the early days of the American Revolution. This letter is often anthologized under the title, Remember the Ladies, a phrase from the letter, though of course letters don't have titles. At the time of the letter's writing, John Adams was in Philadelphia as a delegate from Massachusetts to the Second Continental Congress, and in the letter, Abigail Adams asks her husband not to forget the rights of women as the delegates discuss what should be the rights of the American colonists, and it's for this petition that this letter is still read and remembered and discussed. But there is more in the letter worth reading and remembering as well, which I'll also be discussing. Before reading the letter, let me take some time to fill in the historical situation. Abigail is writing from the Adams family home in Braintree, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston, at the end of March 1776. A year earlier, On April 19, 1775, British troops stationed in Boston had marched into the Massachusetts countryside to seize the arms and ammunition of fractious colonists, only to be met by militiamen who drove them back to Boston. During the following days, additional colonial militia units surrounded Boston, leaving the British to occupy the city but unable to leave it except by ship. The British troops had already been quartered in the homes of the citizens of Boston, and they continued to occupy them. A stalemate ensued, remembered as the Siege of Boston, which lasted until the American troops, newly under the command of George Washington, occupied the heights above Boston Harbor and stationed cannon there that could fire on the British ships, which were the lifeline of the British troops. Within days, the British troops left Boston by ship and departed to parts then unknown. This occurred on the morning of March 17, 1776. Abigail's letter was written two weeks later, on the 31st of March. John, meanwhile, was in Philadelphia, representing Massachusetts at the Second Continental Congress. The First Continental Congress, to which John had also been a delegate, had established not only a sense of common cause, but common action and decision-making among the British colonies. The Second, convened in response to the armed conflict between British and colonial Americans in Massachusetts, would go much further, eventually issuing a Declaration of Independence and Articles of Confederation encompassing 13 colonies. In doing so, the Second Continental Congress became the de facto government of the United Colonies, creating an army and managing the war effort, as well as conducting international diplomacy for the infant nation, which, in 1776, the year of this letter, it christened the United States of America. 
Taking a leading role in the European Enlightenment, the Congress sought to ground its Declaration of Independence in principles based on universal human rights, rights that at that time had not been put into words. It is to this discussion that Abigail presents her thoughts to her husband on behalf of women. This, then, is the context of the letter. The siege of Boston, which resulted in the expulsion of the British occupying troops, had just concluded. The people of Boston are repossessing their homes. John Adams is in Philadelphia participating in a discussion on the rights of man that would have a transformative effect not just in the American colonies, but throughout the entire world in the centuries to come. The future of the war between England and the American colonies was unclear. Where had the British troops even gone? Would the United Colonies rise to the occasion now that war was here? Abigail poses these questions to her husband, in particular asking if Virginia, with its entrenched slavery, would be a stalwart in defense of liberty as Massachusetts had proven itself. And would a convention of men pondering their own rights ponder as well the rights of women? Let's listen. A letter from Abigail Adams to her husband, John Adams, Braintree, Massachusetts, March 31st, 1776. My dearest friend, I wish you would ever write me a letter half as long as I write you, and tell me, if you may, where your fleet are gone, what sort of defense Virginia can make against our common enemy, whether it is so situated as to make an able defense. Are not the gentry, lords, and the common people vassals? Are they not like the uncivilized natives Britain represents us to be? I hope their riflemen, who have shown themselves very savage and even bloodthirsty, are not a specimen of the generality of the people. I am willing to allow the colony, that is, Virginia, great merit for having produced a Washington, but they have been shamefully duped by a Dunmore. I have sometimes been ready to think that the passion for liberty cannot be equally strong in the breasts of those who have been accustomed to deprive their fellow creatures of their liberty. Of this, I am certain that it is not founded upon that generous and Christian principle of doing to others as we would that others should do unto us. Do you not want to see Boston? I am fearful of the smallpox, or I should have been in before this time. I got Mr. Crane to go to our house and see what state it was in. I find it has been occupied by one of the doctors of a regiment, very dirty, but no other damage has been done to it. The few things which were left in it are all gone. Crane has the key which he never delivered up. I have wrote to him for it, and am determined to get it cleaned as soon as possible and shut it up. I look upon it as a new acquisition of property, a property which one month ago I did not value at a single shilling, and could with pleasure have seen it in flames. 
Boston in general is left in a better state than we expected, more owing to a precipitate flight than any regard to the inhabitants, though some individuals discovered a sense of honor and justice and have left the rent of the houses in which they were for the owners and the furniture unhurt or, if damaged, sufficient to make it good. Others have committed abominable ravages. The mansion house of John Hancock is safe and the furniture unhurt, whilst both the house and furniture of Samuel Quincy, their own solicitor general, have fallen a prey to their own merciless party. Surely the very fiends feel a reverential awe for virtue and patriotism while they detest the parasite and traitor. I feel very differently at the approach of spring to what I did a month ago. We knew not then whether we could plant or sow with safety, whether when we had toiled we could reap the fruits of our own industry, whether we could rest in our own cottages, or whether we should not be driven from the sea coasts to seek shelter in the wilderness. But now we feel as if we might sit under our own vine and eat the good of the land. I feel a gaiety decor to which before I was a stranger. I think the sun looks brighter, the birds sing more melodiously, and nature puts on a more cheerful countenance. We feel a temporary peace, and the poor fugitives are returning to their deserted habitations. Though we felicitate ourselves, we sympathize with those who are trembling, lest the lot of Boston should be theirs but they should not be in similar circumstances unless pusillanimity and cowardice should take possession of them. They have time and warning given them to see the evil and shun it. I long to hear that you have declared an independency. And by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion, and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. That your sex are naturally tyrannical is a truth so thoroughly established as to admit of no dispute. But such of you as wish to be happy willingly give up the harsh title of master for the more tender and endearing one of friend. Why then not put it out of the power of the vicious and the lawless to use us with cruelty and indignity, with impunity? Men of sense in all ages abhor those customs which treat us only as the vassals of your sex. Regard us, then, as beings placed by providence under your protection, and in imitation of the supreme being, make use of that power only for our happiness. Abigail here breaks off. She takes the letter up again five days later, on April 5th, adding two paragraphs, one adding more about the contagious illnesses, 
not only smallpox, but also diphtheria and mumps, that are afflicting their neighbors and townsfolk with terrible mortality. And the second paragraph, answering her husband's inquiry as to whether she is making saltpeter, an essential ingredient of gunpowder made by combining manure and ash, which all those living on farms were asked to make to support the troops. She finishes the letter with the words, quote, Adieu. I need not say how much I am your ever-faithful friend, end quote. Friend is the relationship Abigail feels she has with her husband and the one she feels most healthy for marriage, as she explains in this letter. But before going to her thoughts on women's rights and marriage, I want to first look at the letter's opening thoughts on Virginia. As I mentioned in my introduction, it was unknown to her and to the American colonists in general where the British troops that had just left Boston were headed. As it turned out, they went to Halifax, Nova Scotia, not to wage war, but to regroup in a friendly town and harbor. Many Americans thought that New York would be the British Army's next objective, which proved to be the case. But Abigail here imagines the next theater would be Virginia, and she wants to know her husband's estimation of Virginia's strength and resolve. She is skeptical, in part owing to Virginia's different social structure of landed gentry and unlanded commoners, in part because of the reputation of Virginians as unprofessional in the French and Indian War 20 years earlier, and in part because of the widespread practice of slavery in Virginia at the time. I have sometimes been ready to think, she writes, that the passion for liberty cannot be equally strong in the breasts of those who have been accustomed to deprive their fellow creatures of their liberty. Of this, I am certain that it is not founded on that generous and Christian principle of doing to others as we would that others do to us, end quote. Thus we find here, at the birth of the United States of America, concerns both about the place of slavery in what is supposed to be a nation of liberty and equality, and about what it means to be a Christian nation. Similarly, concerns of the rights of women are not something that came about in the 1970s, but has been a part of America since its beginnings. As her husband is helping formulate what Thomas Paine would soon call the rights of man, Abigail urges him not to neglect the rights of women, not taking for granted that the term man includes both men and women, but knowing from both history and experience that it doesn't. That men are tyrannical, she writes, quote, is a truth so thoroughly established as to admit of no dispute, end quote. Some men, she acknowledges, might not behave toward their wives as tyrants, but that doesn't change the fact that the law allows them to be that, if that's what they choose. Why not, she asks, quote, put it out of the power of the vicious and the lawless to use us with cruelty and indignity, with impunity, end quote. 
The language Abigail uses in this letter was familiar to her husband, if not the use she was putting them to. Taxation without representation is tyranny, had been a byword of the independence movement in New England since the Stamp Act of 1765. So John Adams no doubt had to smile when reading his wife's declaration that, quote, if particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation, end quote. But of what sort would John's smile have been? I'd like to think a rueful smile, knowing that he had no choice but to agree, given his own endorsement of exactly this principle on his behalf as a man. But I'm afraid that his smile, if he smiled, was more dismissive than serious. We have only the name of masters, he writes of men to his wife in reply, thinking that men such as himself are all that exist in the world, though Abigail has already forcefully and seriously refuted this. And, he continues, rather than give up this name, which would completely subject us to the despotism of the petticoat, I hope General Washington and all our brave heroes would fight, end quote. It's impossible not to be disappointed, even blown down by this light-hearted response to his wife's serious concerns. Yet, I can't lose my respect for John Adams. Let one example of why not suffice. In 1779, just three years after this exchange of letters, John Adams took on the task of writing a constitution for the state of Massachusetts. In writing it, he did not let up on his male-centered language, as we see in the Constitution's very first sentence, quote, All men are born free and equal and have certain natural, essential, and unalienable rights, among which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberties, end quote. At the time of his writing, slavery, though far more limited and far less severe than the slavery found in the southern colonies, was still legal and practiced in Massachusetts. Just three years after the Massachusetts Constitution was adopted in 1780, this opening sentence was used in the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts, also created by Adams in the Massachusetts Constitution, to win the freedom of a slave, when the Chief Justice declared that on the basis of this opening sentence, quote, perpetual servitude can no longer be tolerated in our government, end quote. Seven years later, the United States Census of 1790 reported that no slaves remained within the boundaries of Massachusetts. Massachusetts was the first state to achieve this. The Enlightenment language of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and so many other men of their day has come to greater and greater fruition, however slowly. Let's pray it continues to do so in America and throughout the world, despite whatever setbacks may come. Until next time, I'm Dr. J.